Recorded by The Way in Brea. Lead pastor Von Jarrett has a heart for the people at The Way and a desire to reach the lost. The Way's production department prays this message is a blessing to you and that you find yourself closer to God through application. Uh, people need to be served. The focus is on the bride and on the groom, not on us. The focus is on those who come to attend, being able to feel the love in the room, being able to feel the joy that the bride and the groom feel. Someone in our church went to a wedding reception yesterday, but it was for a, a wedding that took place a couple of months ago. And I thought it was really uh, interesting. Apparently the couple got married, but they couldn't afford to have their reception at the same time. So they decided to, uh, to wait a little while and they ended up doing it uh, yesterday. At first I thought, hey, that's pretty strange. <laughs> but the more I think about it, I think it's, it's really cool on a lot of levels. First, I love that the couple valued the union more than the celebration of the union, right? right? They were more focused on let's get united, let's get married, let's make this commitment, let's enter into covenant. The party is secondary. And many of us that have gotten married and many of us that have seen other people get married for, for six months, nine months, two years, the focus is all on the celebration and not on the union itself. The second reason I loved it is that the people who claim to love them, right, and value their relationship, they had to do more than just show up on one day and say, we love you guys. They had to actually make another day months later where they said, we still love you guys and we're still going to show up to your reception and we're still going to come and bring a gift when the moment had already passed. I began to think about our church, and I feel like Sundays you heard, you know, I didn't even tell them what I was gonna be sharing on, but, but uh, I think both of them, our, our worship leader Mary and, and Raymond both mentioned, hey, it's a wedding, it's a wedding. Like it's, it's ingrained into their hearts, ingrained into their minds. So I think Sundays here are like a wedding, but I wonder how many of us are willing to come back for the reception. How many of us are willing to say, hey, Sunday was great, it was awesome, but I will be there on Friday for praying in the Spirit? It's, a, it's another day, it's a reception. How many of us are willing to say, I'll be there on Wednesday night for the life group reception and time to celebrate? I'll be there uh, on that once a month sidewalk sanctuary where we go out, it's a reception with the King. We're there to celebrate who God is and what He's done and go out and share it with other people. How many parents will say, hey, I already went on Sunday, but I'll be there on Friday to drop off my teenager for that reception. Isn't it so much easier just to go to the wedding? Isn't it easier if he just says, Lord, just do it all in one day. We just need you to handle everything on Sunday. I think the Lord says, hey, every Sunday, I want you to come back because I'm going to renew my vows. <laughs> But all the other things that I'm doing on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, I need you guys to show up for that too. I think he wants us to keep coming back for all these receptions and all these celebrations. So I learned something yesterday. Uh, I think all weddings in the future should have a wedding day and then receptions later. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for wedding days. We thank you for days to come into the church and celebrate you. We thank you for your servants. We thank you for those who have, have joyfully prepared, Lord, the wedding planners. We thank you that the focus is on the bride and the focus is on you, the groom, Lord God. We pray that every time visitors, Lord, uh, and attendees show up, Lord, that they would see you, that they would feel your presence, that they would feel your love, Lord, and desire to enter into that relationship with you, Lord God. 
As we've come back uh, this morning, Lord, we ask that you would inspire us and encourage us to keep coming back, Lord, that you have other celebrations, other receptions, things that you've planned for us that go beyond just the, the one day of, uh, of entering into a marriage and entering into a wedding ceremony, Lord God. You want to continue to receive us. You want us to continue to show up bearing gifts, Lord God. You want us to be as excited about what you have uh, a week from now and a month from now as we are to come in this morning and to celebrate. Our praise is our, is our weapon, Lord God. Our joy is our weapon, Lord, but it's not only used for one day. We ask that you would have your way over this service, have your way over this message, Lord, and uh, remind us of, of your wedding banquet. You are the king. We love you. We came to be in your presence and to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, but you can stay in Matthew chapter 22. Um, I'm going to start at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 14. If you're in Matthew 22, say it's a wedding. If you're not, what are you doing here? Were you invited? <laughs> Matthew 22, say it's a wedding. Starting at verse 1, it says, Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Say ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murders, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. Stop there, verse 14. The wedding banquet of the king. First thing I want to talk about this morning is the will. Say will. will. Say will. will. So what does will mean? Will as a verb means something that's going to happen in the future. I will go to this particular place. I will show up. I will give one day. I will do whatever I'm going to do. Will as a noun looks past, uh, looks to the past, and it's a legal document that declares what a person wants to do with their assets and with their property now that they're dead. All right? So you have will as a verb that looks to the future. I will do something in the future. You have will as a noun that looks to the past. We wrote down this stuff, and now that we're dead, all the stuff we left behind us, we want to put it in our will of who's going to get it. How many of you have ever received something from somebody else's will? Oh, cool. Three or four of us. Most of us ain't got nothing. <laughs> How many of you are in a position to leave something behind to others? I wonder if it has something to do with who we've put first and where we're storing up our treasures. So the will that I'm going to talk about with you this morning is for the right here and the right now, not the future and not the past. It's about your desires, your decisions, and your actions that you're taking today in the moment. Verse 3 says this, the king sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Right here, right now, somebody shows up and says, you are invited, there is a wedding, come. But their will 
made a decision. Verse 5 says the king said this, Come to the wedding. And they made light of it and went their way. They weren't willing to come, but they were willing to make their own decision and go their own way. The will is so important in these types of moments of our lives. How many of you (laughs) really understand what your will is like? What you are willing to do and what you're not willing to do. When an invitation is made to you, what voice is the strongest? What decisions are you making? What actions are you taking in the moment today? This is what Proverbs 21 verse 1 says. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. In our story this morning, I wonder how many people who were invited to this king's uh, wedding banquet realize that the king's heart was in the hand of God. It says the king's heart is in the hand of God, and God, just like a river, he winds it wherever he wants. He holds the king's heart. He has the king's mouth. What the Lord says is what the king will say. What the Lord desires is where the king will go. And the king makes these invitations, but the people who are responding to the invitation, they just see it as this man, this king, this person inviting me somewhere. How many of them realize, man, God himself was making this invitation to them through a particular person. How many of us think that we're pretty good decision makers when it comes to what we will and what we won't do? What we will and won't do. Somebody invites you somewhere. Somebody asks you to do something. Somebody gives you an opportunity to do something. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but I really want you to think about it. How many of you think, hey, I'm a pretty good decision maker? I think about things and I make good decisions. I decide what's best and what's not best, what's right and what's wrong, what's godly and what's ungodly. I think a lot of us think, hey, we're getting pretty good at that. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow and the end of mirth may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. But a good man will be satisfied from above. It seems right to us, but its end is the way of death. This should give, it gave me reason to pause. I hope it gives you reason to pause. It says, hey, when you're making decisions, it usually seems right. It usually seems like the best thing to do. You usually feel like you've thought it through and it's good, but the end is death. It says, even in laughter, the heart may sorrow. The picture is that we go laughing all the way to the grave. We go laughing all the way to divorce. We go laughing right out of school and into a minimum wage job for the rest of our lives. We go laughing because it feels good. The flesh is enjoying what we're doing. The flesh is enjoying the decisions we're making. The flesh feels good for a moment and we're laughing. But it says that inside your soul, your spirit is in sorrow. How confident are you in the the decisions that you're actually making in the way that you make these decisions? The flesh is satisfied, but the spirit is dying. Then it said, the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. If you think you're always right, if you think you're always making great decisions, chances are you're filled with your own ways and not necessarily God's ways. Pretty much every decision that I make in my life, I call at least two or three people and say, hey, what do you think about this? This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. This is what I told so-and-so. This is what I felt like God was saying. What do you think about that? The Bible says that there's safety and wise counsel. But it says here, the backslider is filled with his own ways. This week, I got a prayer request come through from the app or from the website. So I'll get an email or a text message, and this one came through as an email, and it said, uh, it wasn't somebody in our church, it was somebody from another church, I don't even uh, know exactly who it was, but it said, uh, I have a question, is there a right way and a wrong way to leave a church? So I looked through and I said, I better not be somebody in our church. (laughs) And it wasn't. So then then I respond to the person, and and this this is the response that I gave him. 
I said the first thing you need to do when considering leaving a church is pray. Ask God what the reasons you are thinking about leaving really are. So questions to consider may be, are your reasons for leaving related to the word of God and the spirit of God in the church? Are the leaders involved in some type of unrepentant sin? If not, then ask yourself if maybe you're struggling with things that are not related to the church itself. And maybe they're related to personal things or to individuals within the church. Once you've gone through that process, pray again. And then go have a conversation with the pastor and or leaders. It's never easy for a church to hear someone is leaving, but the respect and honor for those who have led you goes a long way with your pastors and leaders. Leaving with clear, humble, and loving communication is so important, not only for you as you head to another place, but also for other members of the church that you're leaving behind. Leaving with communication allows the pastor and leaders to pray about how they may be able to help those who remain, who may be struggling with similar things to you. I hope that God blesses you staying or leaving and that everyone involved continues to grow in love for Jesus and service unto others. God bless you. My response to this person was basically, don't do what your heart is telling you to do. <laughs> don't make your own decision. Don't think that you somehow are super spiritual and your way is going to lead to life because most often our way leads to death. <laughs> I'm telling this person that, listen, you may find yourself in another church. You may go from this Sunday after being in that church for a year, five years, ten years, to the very next Sunday being in another church for a year, five years, or ten years. Never missed a service, but you will be further away from God than you are now. Why? Because there's a way that seems right to a man. There's a way that seems right to a woman, but its end is death. I looked back at this as I was uh, adding this to the message, and I thought to myself, man, I'm so thankful that I didn't invite them here. <laughs> like the thought never crossed my mind. Hey, who are you? What church do you go to? Well, well how close do you live to Brea? How would you like to join the way? We're a much better church than wherever you're at, obviously. I'm not concerned with the numbers in our church. Amen. Like Raymond said, I'm not ultimately concerned with the fact that giving is down by almost 50%. The real issue is the will of men and women. Yes. I don't need this person to come to our church. And if they did come to our church, I'd have the same problem that the pastor for wherever they are obviously has now. This person's will and their decision-making process. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. How many of you look up in any given week and ask yourself, Man, I made a lot of decisions this week. How many of them were just absolutely wrong? I look up at, at the end of most weeks, and most of you know me, like I have a checklist, and I have things that I want to get accomplished. But at the end of a week, at the end of a month, I find myself often saying, man, I've just been doing what I want to do. <laughs> like, there's got to be some things that I missed here. <laughs> so I start asking, like, leading questions to Mary. Hey, how you doing, babe? You happy? Everything okay in the marriage? I start calling the elders. Hey, what's going on? Everybody good at the church? I mean, are we, you guys need any help? Is there anything that you need from me? Did I miss something? Because I know that all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Listen to Judges chapter 21. It says, The children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and his family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Is it just me, or is that scary? Could you imagine a, a life where there's no king, and everybody just does what's right in their own eyes? How many of us, if you look at your life, your family, your coworkers, your friends, your extended family, 
Would you say that there's a king that everybody is submitting to or is everybody just doing what's right in their own eyes? That's a scary existence. In Judges, that scripture, and our story in Matthew this morning, they're both about kings with a small K. Right? In Judges, it's, it's a king. They, they set up like Saul or like David. He's a king, but he's not the king. In Matthew this morning, it's a king that's throwing a wedding banquet, but it's a small king. It's not, it's not God. It's just a king. But isn't it interesting that people without even a king with a small K are doing what's right in their own eyes? I'm thankful for spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders are there to help us discern the difference between our will and the will of God. It said that this king, his heart was in the hand of God. He was placed there by God to help the people be where they're supposed to be, doing what they're supposed to be doing. We all have access to God, but we should be thankful for spiritual leaders in our life. So it's easy to do the wrong thing by our own will, but it's also very difficult to do the right thing by our own will. I wrote in my notes here that willpower won't power. If you're taking notes, this is a good one. It'll probably come up in your life group. <laughs> willpower won't power. Amen. Willpower will not power you to change. Willpower will not power you to transform. Amen. How many of us have, have said, I'm going to do it, or I'm going to stop doing it. <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to not go. We made up our minds, it's going to happen, and it's going to be changed forever. And then we realized, dang, my willpower is not that strong. I said I'm not going to eat chocolate chip cookies and buy giant boxes of them from Whole Foods just because they're vegan. vegan. My willpower is weak. If I'm anywhere near, it's like a magnet that draws me to Whole Foods. Willpower won't power. Only a change and transformation of character by the Holy Spirit will empower us to actually do what we want to do with God and for God in the direction that God is trying to take us. We don't have enough power within us to do it on our own. Romans 7.14 says, We know that the law is spiritual, but we are carnal and we're sold under sin. What I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, I do not practice. But what I hate, that's what I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that's in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that's what I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. The will, the will of a man, the will of a woman. You know, we come into this relationship with God and it's like, oh, now I really want to do the right thing. It's, it's my new will. I will. I want to do it. And then Paul says, but I can't figure out how to actually do it. I keep doing the wrong thing. I keep saying the wrong thing. I keep going to the wrong places. I keep behaving the, song, the wrong way. I keep withholding when I should be giving. I keep cursing when I should be blessing. I keep taking when I should be giving. I keep hurting when I should be healing. <laughs> what is wrong with my will? So our will, let me give you an example, is like the point of an arrow. It's sharp. It desires to do the right thing. The Lord has opened our eyes. He's opened our hearts. We used to want to do the wrong thing, but now that we know the Lord, we want to do the right thing. Somebody say amen. amen. So this is a paperclip arrow point. Okay? Can you see it? How many of you are afraid right now? <laughs> no? All right, I'm going to use RJ. So RJ, stand up. You can stay right there. Are you afraid? No. I have a sharp arrow right here. It looks like a paperclip, but this could hurt you. It's the will of God. It knows right. I mean, it's penetrating. You're not afraid? All right, cover your eyes just so it doesn't hit you in the one place that it might hurt you. All right. So I'll throw it hard at him. All right, let me have my arrow back. You can sit down for a second. Give RJ a hand for his acting. 
So when we get this king, or let's say we get a spiritual leader, let's say we get somebody that's discipling us, what they're doing is they're teaching us how to sharpen this, this will of God arrow, right? They're teaching us how to make it straight and make it true. They're teaching us how to say, hey, listen, this is what you used to want to do. This is where your will was drawn to. But this is the will of God, and we need to shift. We need to change our direction and go in the will of the Lord, right? The problem is, even if this thing is right and true and headed the right direction, and it's sharp, and it really is going towards the will of God, it had no effect on RJ when I threw it at him. Didn't even hurt him, didn't penetrate, didn't do anything. Somebody say amen. The problem is it has no strength and it has no power. It's the right will. It's sharp. It's going in the right direction. This is Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. See, the problem is you come to the Lord, you get saved, you recognize the difference between your will and his will, you decide that you're going to go with his will, you get some help and support to sharpen you and get you pointed in the right direction, but if there's nothing going on inside of you with your character, there's still no power and no strength. So you get this Holy Spirit in you. And you take that same will. Right? All right, you go ahead and stand up. <laughs> Unless somebody else wants to volunteer this time for RJ. All right. So I'm going to take that wheel. I'm going to get it on here. It's enough for now. And now I've got this Holy Spirit in me. And it's been changing me. And it's been running deep within me. And that will that I had, that had no power, even though it was the right will, now all of a sudden, <laughs> that sharp point becomes a spear. <laughs> it becomes an arrow. Isn't that the difference? Imagine somebody with a bow and arrow, but all they had was just these little uh, sharp points in their bag. They could put it into the bow, but it won't go anywhere. It won't fly straight. And if it does fly straight, it will have no impact when it gets there. The difference now is... The Holy Spirit has done something inside of me. How many Christians now know what the will of God is, but they're still weak, no power, no strength? Because they're not filled with the Spirit. Their character, this is your character. Yes. Amen. This is your mind and your ability to understand what's right, what's wrong, what's you, and what's God. But when your character changes, yep. Amen. this is when you have impact. Cool. I'm just kidding, RJ. Sit down, man. I'm not going to throw it at you. <laughs> Go ahead. Sit down, man. So back to our story in uh, Matthew chapter 22 this morning. What did it say? These people were invited, but they were not willing to come. These people were invited, but they chose to go their own way. They decided what was right and what was wrong. They decided that they were the best decision makers. And they thought all along that the way they were making their decisions was actually pleasing to God. How about your will this morning? Is your will the will of God? Is it sharp and, and true? Is your character deep and strong? Is there strength and power along with the will that you have? Second group I want to talk to you about, or the second thing I want to talk to you about are the servants. We've got the will, now I want to look at the servants. First thing I want to tell you is that serving is not about success. Amen. At least not in the way that we typically look at success. Verse 3 says that the king sent out his servants to call those who were invited. They had a task, right? You're going to be my servants. I'm the king. I want you to go out and call those who are invited to this wedding. Verse 4 says, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Verse 6 says that those who were invited declined or they seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. So not only is serving or being a servant not about success, it sounds like it's pretty much the worst job you could ask for because it's a death sentence. 
Go invite people to the wedding, they're not gonna listen. Go invite other people to the wedding and now you need to tell them that everything's ready and it's prepared for them. And listen, there's a good chance they're gonna kill you and not come. Who's signing up for that job? Who wants to be part of the, the wedding planning committee now? Listen to what the king says in verse 8 and 9 to these servants. He said to his servants, the wedding's ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So look, if you make it through the first round of people who are going to be rude and arrogant and not come, and by chance you're one of the few servants that don't get killed, now we want you to go out to a bunch of strangers and start inviting them to the wedding. This king is crazy. I imagine that they looked at the king like a lot of people in our church and leadership sometimes look at me when I ask them to do things. They're like, man, that makes no sense. Why would you want me to do that? Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. How many of us usually forget the second part? Like, if we came to serve, we realize that Jesus says, the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. And we're like, yes, it's about serving others. And it's not about me. God deserves the glory. And I'm going to go out there. I'm going to help people. I'm going to host a life group. I'm going to be on the worship team. I'm going to teach the children's church. I'm going to even go to the nursery where nobody wants to be. (laughs) Right? Because it's about serving. And we know that Jesus came to serve and not to be served. But at the end of that, he says, but he also gave his life a ransom. He died for it. He served unto death. Amen. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you are tired of serving? (laughs) How many of you are tired of killing yourself? You think it's hard for you to come on a Friday night to drop off your kids? What about the youth leaders? (laughs) So how about this success? Jesus came to the earth. He's God. And after three years of ministry, he had 11 guys and a handful of girls. (laughs) By all measures of the world that we live in, he would have been seen as a complete failure. We have more people in our church right now than he had who are willing to follow him and surrender everything to him. He's Jesus after three years, 11 men and a handful of women. And one of them was his own mama, just like my mama's here. (laughs) Here's something we need to know about servants. Servants leave the outcomes to the king. Jesus left the outcome to his father. Imagine if halfway through Jesus was like, man, this isn't really working out. This is what, you know, when I had that vision of coming down to earth, this isn't what I really thought it was going to be like. It's hard as, as, hum, as humans not to get like that. There's something about Jesus' willingness to die, though, that became a catalyst for faith, a catalyst for devotion, a catalyst for increase. But serving unto death is hard. Right? After he died... That's when all the crazy stuff started to happen. You know, the same is true for us as servants. When you give your life to serving the Lord, that's when crazy things will begin to happen. These servants were told, if you don't die, go out and find some other people that might try to kill you. And it sounds crazy to us, but that's the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Paul says, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. Sometimes the things that the apostles and the prophets said, uh, we kind of look over it. But things like this, when Paul says, I die daily, this is what he's saying. I'm a servant. Every morning I wake up and I say, it ain't about me. And if I got to die, I'm willing to die for you, to serve you, Lord. There was an old... Uh, comedy, uh, stand-up comedy by Chris Rock. I don't advise you watching it. 
I, I only remember it because it was funny, but I haven't watched it since I got saved, so don't hold it against me. Anyway, what he said, he was talking about marriage, and he said, this is what marriage is about. You wake up in the morning as a man, you look in the mirror, and you say, nothing you want matters. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you want or what you need. Now go out there and see how you can make her happy. <laughs> and I always remember it. Because it's true. No. <laughs> But that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, I die daily. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh, I'm alive. Time to die because it ain't about me. It's about you. It's about God. It's about what he wants. It's about how do you want to use me, Lord? If you think about the worst thing that you can do in the world that we live in, people would tell you it's living your life for other people and dying for somebody else's dream to come true. That's what the world will tell you, won't they? Why are you living for other people? Why don't you do what you want to do? Your parents don't run your life. You're a wife, but hey, his happiness isn't what matters. You're a husband, but hey, her happiness isn't what matters. Like the worst thing, if you tell somebody that you're living for somebody else to be happy, they'll look at you like you're a fool. And if you actually are willing to go as far as dying for somebody else's dreams to come true, people will act like you're crazy. A couple weeks ago, we had a message called the Upside Down Kingdom, and it just keeps revisiting me. Like, that's actually what it's supposed to be, even though the world tells you you're crazy. You're supposed to live for other people. You're supposed to die for other people's dreams to come true. What it really comes down to is who you decide to serve and who you decide to die for. I think God created us to live lives of service and sacrifice. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So God tells us, get a job, be faithful in your job, work hard in your job, and be a great witness in your job. Not to fall in love with your job and to serve money and to serve the company, right? To get Pepsi, you work for Pepsi, you have Pepsi tattooed on you. He doesn't say that. He's saying, be great when you're there so that you can be a testimony to me, but ultimately serve me and let me be your God. Don't let your job be your God. Amen. He says, you're going to serve one, though. <clears throat> Same thing about your marriage. He says, listen, be a great husband, be a great wife, be fully committed, be devoted to your kids, but don't let them be your God. Let me be your God. How you love them should be a witness to the love that I have for you. Amen. See, you're going to serve somebody and something, and God just says, let, let it be me. Joshua 24, 15, another one of my favorites. Joshua says to all the people, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua doesn't say choose if you're going to serve false gods or choose if you're going to serve the real God or choose if you're not going to serve anybody. You're going to serve somebody. Choose wisely. Who have you chosen to serve? If someone were to really ask you that this morning, don't answer me, but think about it in your heart. Somebody comes up to you and says, who are you serving? Could you honestly say, I don't even want to ask you. <laughs> How quickly would it roll off of your tongue? I am a servant of the Lord. Or I am a servant of myself. I do what I want to do because I think it's what's best for me. I am a servant of my children. They come first in every decision I make. I'm a servant of this company that can call me in for overtime at any moment. Choose for yourself whom you will serve. If you choose to serve the Lord and be a servant of the Lord, remember that it's not about our success. What God is doing at the wedding banquet is different than what we're doing in preparation for it. Yeah. Amen. When people decline, it's not about us. When people show up, it's not about us. Amen. When your life group grows, it's not about you. When people are engaged in worship and hit the altar, it's not about you. When people enjoy whatever it is that you're doing, when people come into a clean church, it ain't about you and the fact that you cleaned it. 
You are a servant. It has nothing to do with your success. It's about the king. And what he's doing is different than what we're doing. I'm letting you guys behind the scenes right now about serving and ministry and life. (laughs) When people talk to the king, right? Let's say that people show up to the wedding banquet. Somebody say amen. That's what we desire. And they come to talk to the king. And they roll up on Jesus and they begin to talk to him. He has no responsibility to talk to them about what the servants have done. But most servants want that, right? Oh, look, that's the one I invited. They're here. Oh, they're going to talk to the king. And they get up there to talk to the king. Oh, the king better tell them about how often I go out outreaching. Oh, did you see him worshiping? Like they were really into it. Oh, the king better tell them how often we practice. The kids come home with a packet and they're telling their teachers, I mean, they're telling their parents about what they learned. And the teacher's like, oh, the king better tell them about how many days in the month I teach. Somebody gives their life to the Lord and the pastor says, oh, the king better tell them how often I prepare. What is wrong with us? We are servants and it's not about us and it's not about our success. People are ripping up those applications now, aren't they? Check out this hidden jewel, verse 4 of our scripture today, Matthew 22. Again, speaking of the king, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready, come to the wedding. The king says, See, I have prepared. (laughs) What? He didn't prepare it? I guarantee you the king didn't cook any of it. The king didn't set a single table. The king didn't hang a single banner. Who does the king think he is to say, go out and tell people what I've done? Imagine if you're the one that goes out to tell people what the king has done, and you know you're the one that actually did it. (laughs) Why? Real servants understand that they couldn't even serve if it wasn't for the king. Real servants understand that whatever they've done, they've only been able to do it because the king empowered them and gifted them. Real servants understand that whatever we've done as servants, the king could have done it better without us. So when the king says... You go out and tell people that I've prepared everything. We have no problem saying the king has prepared everything. Amen. Let our boss show up to a meeting with something we prepared and him tell everybody that he prepared it. We will lose our mind. <laughs> Why? Because we want credit. Even if the boss is going to take credit, he better say, me and my team did this. <laughs> Can you guys see how this works as servants? How contrary it is to be a servant of God to being an employee or a husband or a wife outside of the realm of God? And if you're going to come in to be a servant of God, how much is going to have to change in your heart and in your mind? It's more than just an invitation to a banquet. The last one I want to talk about. So we've got the will. We've got the servants. And the last one is the guest list. I want to see what we can learn about the guests in our story this morning. Verse 3 calls them out, those who were invited to the wedding. Those are the guests. Then in verse 8, it says, those who were invited were not worthy. I wonder what it means to be worthy of being invited. Hebrews 11 gives us a list of some people who are worthy of attending this type of wedding this type of invitation from the Lord. This is Hebrews eleven thirty three, And it's talking about those who are, are worthy. It says, there are those who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, 
obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tor tortured, not accepting deliverance that they may obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourging, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, and the world was not worthy of them. So in Matthew 22, when it's talking about there's a group of unworthy and there's a group of worthy, this Hebrews 11 kind of gives you the, the characteristics of those who are worthy of accepting the invitation and showing up to the banquet of the king. So the king says, these people are not worthy. Let's go find some who are. Verse 10 the, of Matthew 22, the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Please don't answer, but I have a question for you. Are you a guest that was like on the A-list, like they're hoping you came, or are you a highways and byways guest? I hope you know yourself. And if, if you're on the A-list, don't feel bad about being on the A-list. It's okay. Like, those who have planned a wedding, that's how people make their list. Who do you really want to come? This group? Who are you gonna feel bad if you don't invite? This group? <laughs> I used to think in life that I was on the A-list. But when God found me, I knew that I was a highways and byways, nobody's list at the time. Amen. <laughs> Quiet, Mary. <laughs> Mary's like, the Lord invited me, but Bonnie gonna let me go if he don't get invited too. So there's two groups of people in our story. The invited but unworthy group and the last minute we had some extra tickets group. That's who we see so far, right? The king says, look, they're invited but they're unworthy. And then the king says, go out into the highways. Why? Because we got some extra tickets. I don't want to waste all the food. I want to talk about the guest of honor and the guests of dishonor. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Vessels of honor and dishonor. Are you a vessel of honor or are you a vessel of dishonor? If the king came in here this morning and he said, I need a vessel of honor, how many of you could just shoot up and say, I'm a vessel of honor? <laughs> how many of us would sit kind of confused? Maybe we don't know. Have you come to the wedding banquet of the king this morning to be sanctified and useful for the master? Isn't that what it said? You'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master. Did you come into church this morning saying, I can't wait to praise the king. Thank you for this invitation to the wedding banquet. Please let me be sanctified and useful for the master. Sounds like crazy talk. How many of you came in here to be prepared for every good work. Lord, let me, let me leave this place just a little bit more ready to do something great for you. Amen. How many of you saw the movie A Star is Born? Don't lie. Yeah, raise it high. I, I saw people like, I saw it, but. <laughs> a Star is Born, the new one. I guess it's not that new anymore. We just saw it, though. So the girl in the movie, she has a career in singing, and her, her career is taking off, right? And she ends up winning, I think, a Grammy. And 
she, she, she gets announced to win this Grammy, and she gets out of her seat, and she goes up to the stage to be what? To be honored, right? She's going to be honored for her skill and her talent and her abilities, and she comes up to be honored, and as she's coming up, her husband follows her up the stage, and he's drunk, and he's high, and he's on the stage with her, and he begins to urinate all over himself. He immediately becomes a vessel of dishonor. You've got her who, who's being honored, and then you have this other vessel of dishonor. It's interesting about, about how dishonor actually affects those who are being honored, but I want to talk about that. So meanwhile, back in Matthew chapter 22, think about our guest list again, guest of honor, guest of dishonor. Matthew 22:11 says this, the king came in to see the guest, and he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Imagine sitting in the church thinking you're a vessel of honor, only to find out you're a vessel of dishonor. Imagine sitting there thinking, man, I'm in the right place, doing the right thing. My will is in line with the will of the Father. I feel like my character has been changed. I'm like a spear for Jesus. And then the king walks in and says, how come you don't have on wedding garments? It doesn't matter that you're in the church. You're not clothed in righteousness. See, when they went out to the highways and byways, they found good and bad. And they brought them all in and the house was filled. But the king is still going to come in and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with everybody. The Bible tells a story of a group that was chosen and invited. And the Bible then tells a story of a group that was called and invited. Those groups are Israel and then everybody else. Israel was chosen and invited to this wedding banquet with God. We were called later and invited to this wedding banquet with God. Only two groups of people out there, Israelites and Gentiles. I want to show you a quick video, and then I'm going to close our, our service, guys. Wow, right? <laughs> she said, hang on. She said, you are not part of the scene, you're scenery. <laughs> That's crazy. Listen, church, you are not a seat filler. You are not scenery, but you are lucky to be here. Amen. Could you imagine somebody telling you that you ain't part of the scene, your scenery. 
I think you're called. I think you're invited. I think you are the leading actor or the leading actress in God's story of you. I think the problem is a lot of us don't feel that way about ourselves. And a lot of churches have convinced the people that you're just seat fillers. You're there so it doesn't look empty. (laughs) You're there so the servants can feel good about how we serve and what we do. It's crazy. I want to close by reading what I think is one of of the best chapters, but it's definitely one of my favorites in the Bible. And it gives us clarity on these two groups, the Israelites and uh, the Gentiles. And who's been invited? Who's the, the main event of the story? Why your story is so important. <clears throat> this is Romans chapter 11. It says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham. This is Paul talking. I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? God says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise Work is no longer work. What then Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it's written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The first part, Paul is is talking about how Israel is is falling away from God and nobody wants to serve. And then God says, listen, there's always Israelites who will serve me. I've reserved 7,000 of them that have not bowed down to another God to serve another God, right? And he says, is it so that they'll fall away? He says, certainly not. It's so that they'll be provoked to jealousy when I let these others in. Okay, verse 12. So if Israel's fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, say me, Me. and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Stop there. I'm going to stop at verse 18 for one second. So he says, you've got the group of, of Israelites, and some of them are falling away from God. Some of them are faithful to God. They ask, are they just all going to be cast away? And he says, no, I'm just going to bring in the Gentiles. The Gentiles start to come in. It says that Israel, Israel begins to get jealous. But the Gentiles, he says, listen, you are lucky to be here. You were called and invited, but you are being grafted in to an Israeli tree. <laughs> You've been grafted in. It's their tree. When the Bible talks about loving Israel, praying for Israel, remembering, I love it. Verse 19 says, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand here by faith. Do not be haughty but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. 
And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, or excuse me, if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and then you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I want to stop there real quick at verse 29. I love that verse, and I always tell people the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. If God says something about you, if God has blessed you, if God wants to use you, it's irrevocable. If you, if you stray from that, you repent, you come back to God, and those gifts belong to you. He gave them to you. But really, the context is about Israel. There's a lot of Christians who believe that Israel is the past, and the church is the present and the future, and they're wrong. Israel is the past, the present, and the future, and we've been grafted into that. Let me finish this chapter. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet you have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become God's counselor or who has first given to God and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Isaiah, would you come? The context of, of Romans chapter 11 it's about these two groups, and I want to hopefully help tie it back into Matthew chapter 22. Romans chapter 11 talks about Israel, and it talks about everybody else. No matter what, what country, there's probably 10 countries represented in this building right now, but we're all Gentiles, unless there's any Jews. Any Jews in the building? <laughs> Your daddy ain't here. I'm just kidding. So you have this group, and, and what God's constantly trying to say is, listen, I chose Abram. I created a people. I chose a people. I raised them up. I invited them to this wedding, this banquet. I prepared everything for them. But because they were unfaithful and unwilling, I had to go out into the highways and the byways of all you Gentiles. And I invited you. I said, come on in. This is a special banquet. It's a special dinner. I'm a king, and I'm inviting you into my presence. How he brings us in is like a never-before-seen surgical procedure. <laughs> it doesn't seem like much, but can you imagine when this was written and they said, look, you're going to take this wild olive branch. You're going to break off some of the original branches, and you're going to take this wild one and you're going to sow it into or graft it into the original tree. And the wild one is going to take on the characteristics of the, of the holy one. You know what it's like for you to come into this wedding feast, into this banquet, enter into the family of God? You go from being a wild one to being a holy one. You take on the characteristics of God and the children of God and the people of God. God has an amazing mixed family. <laughs> Last thing I want us to consider as we close, it's March 2019. We can look back and we can see what happened to Israel and why it happened. We can see how Gentiles became uh, part of this family and they came into this feast. But here's the question. Have many of us as Christians become like the Israelites were, where we're invited every week, but now we're starting to make excuses about why we can't come. 
right? That's what they got in trouble for. The king said, it's ready, it's prepared. I did it for you and I expect you to come. And they said, now we've got other things to do. And they killed the servants. How many of us say, yeah, you know, Sundays are enough for me. Yeah, you know, I'm not really into reading my own Bible. Yeah, you know, that whole outreach thing, I think that's for other people, God. You know, giving and tithing, you know, I'll I'll give what I can. But the whole obedience to your word, no, I'm not really into that, Lord. Like, the same thing is happening to us. Would God look down at our church, any church, but our church specifically, is he going to say, look at my family, or is he going to say, there's a remnant in there? That's what he said in Romans 11, right? He said, there are a remnant. It may look bad, but there's a remnant. There's 7,000 out of 7 million. He provoked Israel to jealousy by bringing the Gentiles in, and I wonder if he's going to have to provoke the Gentiles by bringing a whole other group of highways and bywayers in. I pray that there's a passionate, honor-filled response to God's invitations. I pray that we change our plans. I started with the wedding that happened with no reception, and then a couple months later, the reception happened, and people had to change their plans to go. I hope that we're a people that will change our plans for God. Amen. He didn't tell us up front that he wanted to have all these extra receptions. <laughs> but he's God. Let's just change our plans. I hope that we want to dance with him. The worship team was up here like compelling us dance with him. And we're like, no, we didn't come to dance. (laughs) Right? We tell God, no, we didn't. You're lucky we showed up, God. I can't believe you put me at the table you put me at, God. I could have sworn when I RSVP'd I asked for chicken, not steak. Like, it's crazy. But we can do it, church. I was nowhere you came to my rescue. From the grave I've been raised. When I needed a savior to save me, Jesus, you made a way. listening. The Way would love you to visit our church at 451 West Lambert Road, Suite 204 in the city of Brea. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.thewaybrea.com or you can download our church app by visiting your app store and searching The Way Brea. Be blessed.